Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is not John Finnegan. I'm Dr. Mara from America. John is away, I believe, so I am the temporary chairman of the meeting. Father Hugh Thwaites will lead us in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady, help of Christians. St. Joseph. St. Pascal Balin. St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. John Edwards is taping this show, notes that the meeting should be over by 8.45 tonight, the hall cleared by 9 p.m., otherwise they'll probably charge us double, and I suppose everyone knows that. The, uh, anyone who's a newcomer is asked to sign the blue book, which should be circulating now, and uh, this is the last meeting in the 1985-86 series. The next meeting will be on Thursday, October 30th, in the bar hall, and I imagine you'll get your addresses there. Uh, I am going to introduce Father Hugh Thwaites, and I think he's known to you better than to me. I had the honor of meeting Father Hugh several years ago, that he is a member of the Jesuit order is a great, of great interest to me. I have been educated by the great Society of Jesus, and I like to say when it was Catholic, but very, there's a good number of Jesuits who still are Catholic and they are a credit to the church and an inspiration to the, mostly to the men. They usually would educate men in the old days who have uh, benefited from them. Uh, Father Thwaites is going to talk on voices from heaven and I think it's going to be extremely interesting. Today is the feast of the body of Christ, Corpus Christi, which is something visible, something tangible. You know I'm here because my body is here, and you know Father Thwaites is here because his body is here. But then what happens when you think you're hearing voices from heaven? I think we need a real elaboration of what is true and what is false, because sometimes people think they're hearing voices from heaven, and they're crazy. So with that as an introduction, I'll ask Father Hugh to uh, let's greet Father Hugh Quaist. Uh, I'm going to read this largely, and uh, it's not so much uh, because I'm a coward, but mostly because out of my ignorance, I'm just going to deal with generalities and principles and not uh, go in for particulars. And if people ask me afterwards about particulars, I'll probably... Uh, my general attitude to, to, to some modern apparitions is that I always wait for Rome to say something and if one has a dog why do the barking yourself and if one belongs to a church which alone has the charism of not being able to mistake, make mistakes in these areas why let your judgment come to a settled decision so in all these things I uh, prefer just to play full back and wait for Rome to say something. First of all, from Saint and the people I'm going to be reading mostly from, St. Ignatius, Loyola, but chiefly St. John of the Cross. First of all, 
uh, from St. Ignatius is rules for thinking with the church. To arrive at the truth in all things, we ought always to be ready to believe that what seems to us white is black if the hierarchical church so defines it, believing that between Christ our Lord, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, there's one and the same spirit who governs and directs us for the salvation of our souls because our Holy Mother of the Church is ruled and governed by the same Spirit and our Lord who gave the Ten Commandments. So if the Church says something's black and I think it's white, obviously <coughs> I'll be wrong. I remember in our uh, lectures in the seminary, uh, experimental psychology, the Father Lester King, he put up big squares of colour on the wall and we had to look at it for about 20 seconds and then he put another square of colour up and we had to call out the colours yellow, red, blue or whatever it was and he put up a square and we said grey he said right you can forget everything I've ever taught you if you like but please remember you're all convinced that this is grey so we went on looking at it and it was green I don't know how he did it I suppose he must have got our ears our eyes sort of fatigued or something, or conditioned, but we were convinced it was grey. We were agreed it was grey, and it was green. <coughs> well, our minds can get conditioned, but the church can't get conditioned. First of all, I'm going to read out some things from St. Ignatius' Rules for the Discernment of Spirits. What I said about uh, the church must be believed. When the church canonizes somebody, like St. Ignatius or like St. John of the Cross, they go through their doctrine very carefully. And so we have to listen to that teaching uh, pretty humbly. And if we can't understand it, okay. But uh, we ought to be very careful not to uh, disagree with it disagree with it without good cause and without consulting people. Among his rules for the discernment of spirits, he says, it belongs to God our Lord alone to give consolation to the soul without preceding cause. For it's the prerogative of the Creator alone to enter into the soul, to go out of it, and to excite movements in it, drawing it wholly to the love of his divine majesty. I say without cause, that is, without any previous perception or knowledge of any object from which such consolation might come to the soul by means of its own acts of understanding and will. For instance, if, if uh, you have a talk to a young man about the priesthood and afterwards he thinks, yes, he really ought to be a priest. Uh, well, one would be careful about attaching too much importance or if a man in the course of a retreat uh, well, it's a time when one could come to a good decision. But there could be a preceding cause then. But if a, if a young fellow at a disco, say, when he's thinking of, of, of nothing supernatural, suddenly was overwhelmed with a sort of sweet certainty that God wanted him to spend the rest of his life as a priest, that would be, uh, that, that should be taken seriously. With, with no preceding uh, cause that might, might bring that that consolation. He goes on, when a cause has preceded, the consolation may come either from the good or the evil angel, 
but for contrary ends. From the good angel for the profit of the soul, that it may increase and ascend from good to better. From the evil angel for the contrary purpose, that he may draw it onward to his own wicked and malicious designs. I knew a woman, convert, six children, and she became a very enthusiastic convert. And she was always going off to Mass when she should have been doing the washing up or cooking the dinner or something. It ended with a divorce, I'm afraid. Uh, she, she got this desire to go to Mass, but it, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't fit that particular point. It belongs to the evil angel transforming himself into an angel of light to enter, in with a devout, to enter with a devout soul and come out by himself, that is to say, to suggest good and holy thoughts conformable to the dispositions of the said devout soul, and afterwards, little by little, he contrives to gain his own end, drawing the soul to his hidden deceits and perverse intentions. Obviously the devil, uh, he's no fool, and if you're going to catch a fish, you've got to put some bait on it. And he always draws people with what's good. He obviously couldn't draw a good person with what's bad. And so he starts off in his own way with some, something that's really good. But then, bit by bit, he can draw a person to uh, what's plainly bad. I just think a person might start off with a love for the liturgy and end by saying the Pope's a heretic. Well... That would be, uh, obviously, not a good end. We ought carefully to watch the course of such thoughts, and if the beginning, middle, and end are all good, tending towards holy good, it's a sign of the good angel. But if the course of the thoughts suggested ends in something bad or distracting, or less good than that which the soul had previously determined to do, or if they, if they weaken, disquiet, or perturb the soul, taking away the peace, tranquility, and quiet it enjoyed before, it's a clear sign that they come from the evil spirit, the enemy of our spiritual progress and eternal salvation. I'll just read something that uh, Sid Ignatius said of himself, which started him off on all this. It was when he was convalescing at home, he'd been wounded in, in battle, and he had to have painful operations, and he was convalescing. Ignatius was very addicted to reading aimless and exaggerated books about the illustrious deeds of the famous, and when he felt well again, he asked for some to pass the time. But there were no books of that type in the house, and he was given a book called The Life of Christ and another called The Flower of the Saints, both in his native language. By reading these regularly, he developed a certain sympathy with what was written in them. Sometimes he took his mind off them, and turned his thoughts to the type of story he used to read earlier on. Sometimes, according as it occurred to him, he thought about those idle inclinations and things of that nature, such as he used to think about formerly. But divine mercy was at, was at hand, and in place of these thoughts, it used to substitute others from what he'd recently read. For when he'd read the lives of Christ our Lord and the saints, he would think to himself and ponder, what if I were to do what Blessed Francis did, or what Blessed Dominic did? And he used to meditate a good deal in this manner. This way of thinking lasted for some time, but then other things intervened, and he resumed his idle and worldly thoughts, 
and these persisted for a long time. He was involved in that succession of changes of mind for a considerable time. But there was a difference in his two types of subject for thought. When he was intent on his worldly interests, he got great pleasure at the time. But whenever he wearied of them and gave them up, he felt dejected and empty. On the other hand, when he thought about the austerities which he found that holy men practiced, not only did he find joy in the account of them, but when he stopped thinking of them, his joy remained unabated. However, he never noticed the difference or thought about it, until one day it dawned on him, and he began to wonder at it. He understood from experience that the one subject of thought left him dejection, while the other left him joy. This was the first conclusion which he reached concerning things of a supernatural nature. And afterwards, when he'd undertaken spiritual exercises, this experience was the starting point for teaching his followers the discernment of spirits. Let me go on just with uh, two or three of his other rules, and they will go on to St. John of the Cross. When the enemy of our human nature has been perceived and recognized by his serpent's tail and by the bad end to which he leads, it's profitable for him who's been thus tempted by him to examine afterwards the course of the good thoughts suggested to him, both their beginning and how little by little the enemy contrived to make him decline from the state of sweetness and spiritual delight he was in and he, until he brought him to his own depraved purpose in order that by the experience and knowledge thus acquired and noted, he may be on his guard for the future against his accustomed deceits. It's easier said than, than done that, of course, but uh, we do have to always keep an eye over our own thoughts and over our own motives and always measure them up against the ordinary teaching of, of the Catholic faith and the Penny Catechism. In the case of those who are making progress from good to better, the good angel touches such a soul sweetly, lightly and gently as a drop of water enters a sponge, and the evil angel touches it sharply and with noise and disturbance, as when the drop of water falls upon a rock. In the case of those who go from bad to worse, the said spirits touch it in a contrary manner. The reason of which difference is the disposition of the soul, according as it's contrary or similar to the aforementioned angels. For when it's contrary to them, they enter with noise and sensible commotion, so that their coming may easily be perceived. But when it's similar to them, they enter in silence, as into their own house by an open door. And when I read that, I thought of what happens sometimes at uh, these prayer meetings when people, as they say, are slain by the Spirit and they suddenly collapse. In the case of a good person who's trying to serve God, as I see it, well, according to this rule of St. Ignatius, that would not be a good sign. And it wouldn't, they say, it's being slain in the Spirit or slain by the Spirit, but... Uh, I just wonder which spirit that might be. When the con this is the last one. 
when the consolation is without any preceding cause, though there be no deception in it, inasmuch as it proceeds only from God our Lord, as, been, as has been said, nevertheless, the spiritual person to whom God gives such a consolation ought with great vigilance and attention to examine and distinguish the time itself of the actual consolation from the time following, in which the soul con continues fervent and feels the remains of the divine favor and consolation lately received. For in this second period, it often happens that by its own thoughts, in accordance with its habits, and in consequence of its own conceptions and judgments, or by the su suggestion of the good or evil spirit, it forms various resolutions and plans, which are not inspired, <coughs> which are not inspired immediately by God our Lord. And hence, it's necessary that they be very carefully examined before they receive entire credit and are carried into effect. So really, a, a good protection always is to have a, a priest or someone who's experienced in spiritual things to whom we can go and refer matters to. It's, it's very dangerous to uh, think that anyone can get through life without going to, to someone for spiritual counsel and guidance. Now, before we go on to St. John of the Cross, I want to read a letter which I came across uh, nine years ago in the correspondence page of the Times from Mr. Bernard Bulford. Sir, this is written 23rd of August, 1977. Sir, we are at present camping at Great Tower National Scout Camp site in the Lake District on our annual summer camp. We have been climbing up many of the mountains in the area, such as Helvellyn, and it has shocked us to see the amount of people going up these mountains unprepared. For example, we have passed whole families climbing up in Wellington boots and flip-flops, and people climbing Striding Ridge at Helvellyn without maps or compasses. In the early evening, on our way down, we have been stopped and asked their way up by people who are going up without the necessary equipment for evening hikes, such as torches, map, emergency rations, and purpose clothing. These mountains, if treated with respect, are a friend. If treated with contempt, as we have seen by the ill-prepared day-trippers, they are their worst enemy. My respect goes out to those people who form our mountain rescue teams, who have to go out to rescue these people. He belongs to the first Platte Ranger Venture Unit. He wrote from the National Scout Campsite, Windermere. To ascend the mountain of God, Mount Carmel, it's not a picnic, and we should be very prudent and humble and always take for our guides people whom the church recommends to us and not think that we have enough wit to get, get, get up there on, on our own. And so when the church canonizes these great saints, then we do well to follow them. And in this area, I suppose, there's no one greater than St. John of the Cross. And so I'll be reading out now uh, chunks of what he wrote in The Ascent of Mount Carmel and a bit from The Dark Night. And uh, some of it's a bit difficult to understand. It's an American translation, I think, which makes it sometimes a bit harder. Uh, <laughs> but, <you> know, uh, <laughs> 
But uh, anyhow, it, it, it's a new translation. It's, it must, it's, it's written, it's a translation by two Carmelites, uh, Alice and Piers. That, that was the one I knew before, and of course he wasn't a Catholic, and I suppose it's a, it's a nice thing to have a thing that's completely Catholic. Uh, from the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book 2. Uh, and the chapter is headed, Faith is the proximate and proportionate means to the intellect for the attainment of the divine union of love. And this is a thing that he just comes back to all the time. It is only by faith that we can make any progress. And everything must be, uh, sh should help our faith, the quality of our faith. He says, we can gather from what's been said that to be prepared for this divine union, the intellect must be cleansed and emptied of everything relating to sense, divested and liberated of everything clearly apprehensible. Apprehensible, what one, what's able to be apprehended. Actually, it must be frightfully difficult translating this. <coughs> liberated of everything clearly apprehensible, inwardly pacified and silenced, and supported by faith alone, which is the only proximate and proportionate means to union with God. For the likeness between faith and God is so close that no other difference exists than that between believing in God and seeing him. Just as God is infinite, faith proposes him to us as infinite. As there are three persons in the one God, it presents him to us in this way. And as God is darkness to our intellect, so does faith dazzle and blind us. Only by means of faith is divine light, sorry, only by means of faith in divine light exceeding all understanding does God manifest himself to the soul. The more intense a man's faith, the closer is his union with God. St. <coughs> Paul indicated this in the passage in Hebrews. He who would be united with God must believe. This means that a man must walk by faith in his journey to God. The intellect must be blind and dark and abide in faith alone because it's joined with God under this cloud. And as David proclaims, God is hidden under the cloud. Quote from the Psalms, He set darkness under his feet and he rose above the cherubim and flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness and the dark water his hiding place. This darkness under God's feet and of his hiding place and the dark water of his dwelling denotes the obscurity of faith in which he is enclosed. The verse stating that he rose above the cherubim and flew upon the wings of the wind alludes to how God soars above all understanding. The cherubim typify those who understand or contemplate. The wings of the wind signify the subtle ideas and lofty concepts of the spirit. Above these is his being which no man can reach through his own efforts. Then the next chapter is a division of all apprehensions and ideas comprehensible to the intellect. And if this, if this seems incredibly heavy going, well, I suppose if you're going to do mountaineering, you have to do a, a terrible lot of study. There must be all sorts of things people have to study if they climb a mountain. Uh, And certainly, anyhow, just to listen to this, it, it shows us that uh, St. John of the Cross is a master of, of his uh, subject and that we don't know all that much. 
to discuss in particular the advantages and the harm which intellectual concepts and apprehensions cause to the soul's faith, which is, the, which is the means to divine union, we need to set up a division of all the natural and supernatural apprehensions of the intellect. Later then, in a more logical order, we shall be able to guide the intellect through them into the night and darkness of faith. Our division will be as concise as possible. We must note that the intellect can get ideas and concepts in two ways, naturally and supernaturally. Natural knowledge includes everything the intellect can understand by way of the bodily senses or through reflection. Supernatural knowledge compri comprises everything imparted to the intellect in a way transcending its natural ability and capacity. This supernatural knowledge is subdivided into corporal and spiritual. The corporal is made up of two kinds, knowledge originating from the exterior bodily senses and that received from the interior bodily senses, including all the imagination can apprehend, form or fashion. The spiritual is also made up of two kinds, distinct and particular knowledge, and vague, dark and general knowledge. The particular knowledge includes four kinds of distinct apprehensions communicated to the spirit without the means of bodily senses, visions, revelations, locutions, and spiritual feelings. The dark and general knowledge, that is, contemplation which is imparted in faith, is of one kind only. We have to lead the soul to this contemplation by guiding it through all these other apprehensions and, beginning with the first, divesting it of them. We now come to the sort of main chapter in, in, uh, in his teaching in this area. It's the following chapter, and it's entitled The Impediment and Harm Caused by Intellectual Apprehensions Arising from Objects Supernaturally Represented to the Exterior Senses, the Proper Conduct of the Soul in Their Regard. He says, Our discussion in this chapter will deal only with the supernatural knowledge which reaches the intellect by way of the exterior bodily senses, that is, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. It must be known that even though these apprehensions come to the bodily senses from God, one must never rely on them or accept them. A man should rather flee from them completely and have no desire to determine whether they be good or bad. I may say I found this all very surprising. I'm very glad I've had to do this because I've long wanted to read more of St. John of the Cross and this made me do it. But he says that we must do our best to reject these things and he goes on to explain later why that won't do us any harm at all. The more exterior and corporal they are, the less certain is their divine origin. God's communication is more commonly and appropriately given to the spirit in which there's greater security and profit for the soul than to the senses where ordinarily there is extreme danger and room for deception. Thinking that these supernatural communications are identical with what is felt, the bodily senses usually set themselves up as arbiter and judge over them. But the communications are as different from what is felt as is the body from the soul and sensibility from reason. The bodily sense is as ignorant of rational matters as a beast of burden. Indeed, is more ignorant of them, 
and still more of spiritual matters. He who esteems these apprehensions, apprehensions, what sort of comes into, uh, comes into us, is in serious error and extreme danger of being deceived. And I may say, as we're reading this, I just have to keep reminding myself that he is a doctor of the church. And before they canonize anyone like this, they go over their teachings so carefully. And when the church canonized him, she canonizes his doctrine. And so we have to say that this is the mind of the church. I'll start that bit again. He who esteems these apprehensions is in serious error and extreme danger of being deceived, or at least he will hinder his spiritual growth because, as we mentioned, these corporal perceptions bear no proportion to what is spiritual. These manifestations ought always to be considered diabolical more certainly than divine. For the devil possesses greater leeway, actually that's not a word, greater leeway, I suppose he has more scope for the devil possesses greater leeway in influencing the exterior and corporal part of man. He can deceive the soul more readily through this action than through a more interior and spiritual kind. The more exterior these corporal objects and forms, the less profitable they are to the interior and spiritual part of the soul. This is due to the extreme distance and disparity between the corporal and spiritual. For the even though some spiritual nourishment results from these corporal communications, which is always the case when they have a divine origin, it's far less than when the communications are more spiritual and interior. As a result, they are already occasion for the breeding of error and presumption and vanity. Palpable, tangible and material as they are, they strongly affect the senses, so that in one's judgment they seem to be more worthwhile. A man then, forsaking faith, will follow after these communications, believing that their light is the guide and means to his goal, which is union with God. But the more importance he gives to these communications, the further he strays from faith, which is the way and means. And I thought of St. Louis of France in the chapel uh, at Mass, when the priest held up the host after it happened once, when the priest held up the host after consecration, everyone there saw our Lord. St. Louis wasn't at that Mass, so somebody rushed off to get him, but he wouldn't come. He said he, see, he sees him every day by faith, and he wasn't going to lose the merit of that. Extraordinary. But uh, it sort of tallies with what St. John of the Cross is saying, that uh, faith is the great means to our union with God. And that these outward things, sure they can help a person come to faith, but faith is always the, what we must prize above everything. Furthermore, a person receiving these apprehensions often develops secretly a rather fine opinion of himself, that now he is someone in God's eyes. And uh, the other day it was the Feast of St. Augustine of Canterbury. And uh, I just want to read a letter, just to show that St. John of the Cross wasn't the first person to realize that. A letter that the Holy, the Pope St. Gregory the Great sent to St. Augustine of Canterbury. Uh, the Pope, came from the, they came from the same monastery, and he sent him out to England to convert us. And an enormous number of miracles followed. It wasn't St. Augustine's preaching. It was the great number of miracles that God worked through him that made the 
natives realized that this was the real thing and they got converted in great numbers. When the Pope heard of all these miracles, he got anxious. And uh, he wrote to St. Augustine, Who could fully tell the joy that has sprung up in the hearts of all the faithful because the race of the English, through the grace of Almighty God and the labors of your brotherhood, has had the light of holy faith poured out on it and the darkness of error driven away. How in purity of mind they trample down those idols which previously they served in insane fear. Marvelously unecumenical, that. I mean, no sort of... Uh, anyhow. They worship Almighty God with pure hearts and by the rules which they've learnt from the holy preaching, they're restrained from falling into evil deeds. With their souls, they serve the divine commandments, and in their minds, they're raised up by them. They bow down to the ground continually in prayer, that their minds may not lie prostrate on the earth. Whose work is this, if not the work of him who says, My Father is working even now, and I am working. It is by his power, and not by the wisdom of men, that the world is converted. And to prove this, he has chosen unlearned men to be his preachers, and has sent them into the world. This, too, is what he is doing at the present time, for he has deigned to do mighty works among the English through weak men. But in this heavenly gift, dearest brothers, there is something to cause great joy and great fear. For I know that Almighty God, through your love, has shown great miracles in the race which he has willed to choose. This heavenly gift must cause you fearful joy and joyful fear. Joy, because the souls of the English are drawn by external miracles to interior graces, and fear that the weak soul may become elated and presumptuous at these signs, and that what brings it outward honor may cause it to fall inwardly into vain glory. We must remember that when the disciples, returning in joy from their preaching, said to their heavenly master, Lord, in your name even demons are subject to us, they heard at once, Do not rejoice because of this, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So, to go back to St. John of the Cross. I'll read that beginning of that paragraph again. Furthermore, a person receiving these apprehensions often develops secretly a rather fine opinion of himself, that now he's someone in God's eyes. Such a view is contrary to humility. The devil, too, is adept at suggesting to the individual a secret self-satisfaction -satisfa which becomes truly obvious at times. He often pervades objects to the senses, affording to the sense of sight images of saints and most beautiful lights, and to the hearing dissembled words, and to the sense of smell fragrant odors, and he puts sweetness in one's mouth and delight in the sense of touch. He does all this so that by enticing persons through these sensory objects he may induce them into many evils. Such representations and feelings, consequently, must always be rejected. Even though some may be from God, this rejection is no affront to him. Neither will one, upon voluntarily dismissing them, cease to receive the fruit God wishes to produce through these communications. The reason is that if the corporal vision or feeling of the senses has a divine origin, it produces its effect in the spirit at the very moment of its perception, without allowing any deliberation about wanting or not wanting it. 
This is likewise so with the more interior communications. Since God grants these favors without the individual's own ability and effort, he causes the desired effect of these favors without this ability and effort. For this is an effect he produces passively in the spirit. The good effect, accordingly, does not depend upon wanting or not wanting the communication. Where fire, to come into immediate contact with a person's flesh, that person's desire not to get burnt would hardly be helpful, for the fire will produce its effect necessarily. So too, with good visions and sensible, com sensible ones that perceive but the senses, and sensible communications, even when a person dismisses them, they produce their effect first and foremost in the soul rather than, the, than in the body. Those from the devil also, even though the soul does not desire them, cause in the spirit either agitation or dryness or vanity or presumption. Yet diabolical communications are not as efficacious in doing harm as God's communications are in doing good. For the diabolical communications can only arouse the first movements without being able to move the will any further if it's unwilling to be moved. The unrest caused by them will not last long unless the individual's lack of courage and circumspection occasion its endurance. The divine communications, however, penetrate the soul, moving the will to love and leave their effect within. The soul, even if it wants to, can no more resist them than can a window withstand the sunlight shining on it. And again, now what he's going to say here, we have to remember his stature as the great doctor in the church on mystical theology. He says, a person should never dare accept these communications, even though, as I say, they have a divine origin. If he does, six kinds of harm will result. First, faith will gradually diminish, for sensible experiences greatly detract from it. Faith, as we said, transcends all sense. By not closing the eyes of, the, of his soul to all these sensory apprehensions, a person strays from the means to union with God. Secondly, if left unrejected, they are an impediment to the spirit because they detain it and prevent it from soaring to the invisible. This is why our Lord told the disciples that it was, it was fitting for him to go, that the Holy Spirit might come. And so that Mary Magdalene would be grounded in faith, he refused to allow her to touch his feet after his resurrection. Thirdly, the soul begins to develop a possessive attitude towards these communications and fails to continue on its journey to genuine renunciation and nakedness of spirit. God might give a person such consolation. A person might think they've arrived not realizing that uh, I once went climbing up in the Alps with some Jesuits and when we got to a certain height the man in charge pulled a flask out of his pocket we were getting quite high he pulled a flask out of his pocket and uh, gave us what the local sort of decor I suppose and it helped us go on but God can give people such comfort they can forget they've hardly sort of they haven't got halfway up. This is just to encourage them and give them the strength to carry on with the journey. Fourthly, 
a man gr gradually loses the effect of these communications in the interior spirituality they produce because he sets his eyes upon their sensible aspect, sensible what can be perceived with the senses, upon their sensible aspect, which is the least part of them. As a consequence, he does not acquire so copiously the spirituality they cause. The spirituality, I suppose he means the 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 the, the graces that they can they, that God wants to give through them. This spirituality is preserved and more deeply impressed in the soul if the sensible element, which is far different from pure spirituality, is denied. Fifthly, a man gradually loses God's favors because he receives them as if they belong to himself and does not profit well by them. Taking them as his own and failing to profit by them is the same as desiring to receive them. God does not bestow them so that the recipient may desire them, for a person must never decidedly believe that they are from God. I've made to bring the imitation along because uh, in the second book, in the 11th chapter, I think, and in the 12th chapter, there's things that Thomas Akempis writes which are really just the same as this. I mean, he's not unique at all, St. John of the Cross, though no one's done it better. But the great masters of the spiritual life, they all say the same thing. It's just that he is the one the church says, you know, he, he is the greatest, really. Sixthly, through the, through the desire of accepting him, one opens the door to the devil. The devil can then deceive one by other communications expertly feigned and disguised as genuine. In the words of the apostle, he can transform himself into an angel of light. We shall discuss this matter with God's help in the third book, in the chapter on spiritual gluttony. He goes on in the same chapter. Regardless of the cause of these apprehensions, the apprehensions, uh, these things that have come to us, it's always good for a man to reject them with closed eyes. If he fails to do so, he will make room for those having a diabolical origin and empower the devil to impose his communications. Not only this, but the diabolical representations will multiply while those from God will gradually cease, so that eventually all will come from the devil and none at all from God. This has occurred with many incautious and uninstructed people who in their sureness concerning the reception of these communications encountered real difficulty in returning to God through purity of faith. Many have been unable to return because of the deep roots the devil has taken in them. Consequently, it's expedient to be closed to these communications and to deny them all, for in this way, diabolical errors coming from the bad apprehensions are eliminated, the hindrance to faith occasioned by the good communications is avoided, and the spirit gathers the fruit. If God wants to give something to the soul, nothing can keep him out. Blessed Claude de la Colombière, he prayed that he might never receive any of these extraordinary gifts of grace or extraordinary lights in prayer. And it's such a safe prayer, that. There's so much danger for deception in what's extraordinary. But the humble, slogging way of... I would have somebody, a priest, who said, I've served God faithfully for 40 years, 
and never once has he given me the least consolation in prayer. There's no possibility of deception. If we really sort of slug away and pray and do what we know we ought to do by faith, we're not being deceived. But uh, it's possible, certainly, for the soul to be flooded with consolation. And uh, to, to, to a bad end. So, we, we really have to take St. John of the Cross seriously. He, he does know what he's talking about. Well, the Church assures us that he knows what he's talking about. If a man, I mean, I believe St. John of the Cross, not because it makes sense, because I don't understand it all anyhow. I believe St. John of the Cross is teaching because the Church tells me I may believe it. If a man remains both faithful and retiring in the midst of these favors, the Lord will not cease raising him degree by degree until he reaches the divine union and transformation. Our Lord proves and elevates the soul by first bestowing graces that are exterior, lowly, and proportioned to the small capacity of sense. If the person reacts well by taking these first morsels with moderation for his own strength and nourishment, God will bestow a more abundant and higher quality of food. If the individual is victorious over the devil in the first degree, he will pass on to the second, and if so in the second, he will go to the third, and likewise through all the seven mansions, the seven degrees of love, until the spouse puts him in the wine cellar of perfect charity. Happy the man who knows how to carry on the fight against the beast of the apocalypse and its seven heads, which are in opposition to these seven degrees of love. With each of its heads, the beast wars against one of these degrees, and by so doing, it wages battle with the soul in each of these mansions. And in every mansion, the soul is exercising the love of God and winning another degree. Doubtless, if a man fights faithfully and conquers in each mansion, he will merit an advancement from degree to degree and from mansion to mansion unto the ultimate, where he will cut off the seven heads of the beast against which he fought the furious war. This is so full of violence that St. John says the beast was permitted to fight against the saints and was victorious in each of these degrees of love by using arms and abundant munitions. It is most regrettable that many, upon entering this battle against the beast, are even incapable of severing the first head through denial of the sensible objects of the world. Some make the effort and cut it off, but then fail to sever the second, which consists of the sensory visions we were discussing. What is most lamentable is that after, having, after some have cut off not only the first and second, but the third also, in regard to the interior corporal senses, by passing out of the state of me meditation and advancing further, they, at the moment of their entrance into purity of spirit, are conquered by this spiritual beast, which returns to the assault and revives even unto the first head. In their fall, the last state becomes worse than the first, since the beast takes with it seven other spirits worse than itself. The spiritual person ought to deny all the apprehensions and temporal delights of the exterior senses, if he desires to cut off the first and second head of the beast by entering the first mansion of love and the second of living faith. One should not des desire to clutch sensory communications nor suffer encumbrance from them, since they are what most derogates from faith. 
Manifestly, these visions and sense apprehensions cannot serve as a means for union since they bear no proportion to God. This is one of the reasons for Christ's not wanting Mary Magdalene or St. Thomas to touch him. The devil's most pleased when he sees that a man desires to admit revelations, for then he has an excellent opportunity to inject errors and disparage faith. As I have declared, a man desiring these apprehensions becomes coarse in his faith and even exposes himself to many temptations and improprieties. He ends with a paragraph, sort of, you know, a bit of a qualification. I've treated these exterior apprehensions somewhat at length so as to shed more light on the others, which we shall soon discuss. There is so much to say, however, on this subject that I believe I would never finish. And I think I was, and I think I was too brief in only explaining that a person should be careful never to accept them, unless in some rare case and with extremely competent advice and then without any desire for them. But I think my exposition of this subject is sufficient. We have to remember, of course, that uh, God doesn't call anyone except St. John of the Cross to be St. John of the Cross. We are all individual, and our holiness is all, must be separate, different, and we are all called in our own way. And he, he was extraordinary. He suffered an extraordinary amount, the crosses God gave him. But uh, we're all called a holiness. And the warnings he, give, he gives, I think they're really quite uh, relevant. And the last bit I'm going to be reading is... Boy, I've been going on. Dear me, sorry. Uh, just two bits now from The Dark Knight about spiritual gluttony. The chapter is called The Imperfections of Spiritual Gluttony. He's dealt with uh, three other vices before, spiritual avarice, lust, and anger. Now this chapter starts, he says, A great deal can be said on spiritual gluttony, the fourth vice. There's hardly anyone among these beginners, no matter how excellent his conduct, who will not fall into some of the many imperfections of this vice. Really, I mean, reading this, I think one can always identify oneself with the beginners he keeps talking about. These imperfections arise because of the delight beginners find in their spiritual exercises. Many, lured by the delight and satisfaction procured in their religious practices, strive more for spiritual savour than for spiritual purity and discretion. Yet it is this purity and discretion which God looks for and finds acceptable throughout a soul's entire spiritual journey. Besides the imperfection of seeking after these delights, the sweetness these persons experience makes them go to extremes and pass beyond the mean in which virtue resides and is acquired. Some, attracted by the delight they feel in their spiritual exercises, will kill themselves with penances, and others will weaken themselves by fasts and, without counsel or command of another, overtax their weakness. Indeed, they try to hide these penances from the one to whom they are obedience in such matters. Some would even dare perform these penances contrary to obedience. Such individuals are unreasonable and most imperfect. They subordinate submissiveness and obedience, which is a penance of reason and discretion, and consequently a sacrifice more pleasing and acceptable to God, to corporal penance. But corporal penance without obedience is no more than a penance of beasts. 
and like beasts, they're motivated in these penances by an appetite for the pleasure they find in them. Since all extremes are vicious, and since by such behavior these persons are doing their own will, they grow in vice rather than in virtue. For through this conduct, they at least become spiritually gluttonous and proud, since they do not tread the path of obedience. The devil, increasing the delights, well, you think of St. Margaret Mary, and it's happened to other saints. She was in her cell talking to our Lord, and uh, the bell rang for something, and so she just got up. Our Lord was in the middle of a sentence. She got up and went out, and when the duty was finished, she came back, and there was our Lord waiting for her. And he said to her, if you hadn't left then, I would have done. So even though she was talking to God himself, the bell went, and that was it. The devil, increasing the delights and appetites of these beginners, and thereby stirring up this gluttony in them, so impels many of them that when they are unable to avoid obedience, they either add to, change, or modify what was commanded them. Any obedience in this matter is distasteful to them. Some will reach such a point that the mere obligation of obedience to perform their spiritual exercises makes them lose all desire and devotion. Their only yearning and satisfaction is to do what they feel inclined to do, whereas it would be better in all likelihood for them not to do this at all. Some are very insistent that their spiritual director allows them to do, to do what they themselves want to do, and finally almost force the permission from him. And if they don't get what they want, they become sad and go about like tested children. They are under the impression that they do not serve God when they are not allowed to do what they want since they take gratification and their own will as their support and their God, they become sad, weak and discouraged when their director takes these things from them and desires them to do God's will. They think that gratifying and satisfying themselves is serving and satisfying God. Others too, because of this sweetness, have so little knowledge of their own lowliness and misery and such lack of the loving fear and respect they owe to God's grandeur that they do not hesitate to insist boldly that the confessors allow them the frequent reception of communion. And in those days, well, if one, had, if one went to communion, even I think weekly, one had to get permission, or certainly if one wanted to go during the week, one had to get permission. Amazing. And worse than this, they often dare communicate without the permission and advice of the minister and dispenser of Christ. They are guided here solely by their own opinion, and they endeavor to hide the truth from him. As a result, with their hearts set on frequent communion, they make their confessions carelessly, more eager just to receive communion than to receive it with a pure and perfect heart. And this may sound amazing, but it's a fact, obviously, that uh, unless our wills are subject to God, where we, we can't get the grace he wants, and obedience is certainly better than going to the sacraments. And if superiors don't go to communion, we get the grace we need by not going to communion. It would be sounder and holier of them to have a contrary inclination and to ask their confessor not to let them receive communion so frequently. You've got to put this in context because he goes on, although humble resignation is better than either of these two attitudes. But, bold, but the boldness is referred to first would bring great evil and chastisement upon the others. In communicating, they spend all their time trying to get some feeling and satisfaction rather than humbly praising and reverencing God dwelling within them. 
and they go about this in such a way that if they don't procure any sensible feeling and satisfaction, they think they've accomplished nothing. As a result, they judge very poorly of God and fail to understand that the sensory benefits are the least among those that this most blessed sacrament bestows, for the invisible grace it gives is a greater blessing. God often withdraws sensory delight and pleasure that so that souls might set the eyes of faith upon this invisible grace, not only in receiving communion, but in other spiritual exercises as well, beginners desire to feel God and taste of him as if he were comprehensible and accessible. This desire is a serious imperfection, and because it involves impurity of faith opposed to God's way. I've almost got to the end. They have the same defect in their prayer, for they, th they think the whole matter of prayer consists in looking for sensory satisfaction and devotion. They strive to procure this by their own efforts and tire and weary their heads and their faculties. When they don't get this sensible comfort, they become very disconsolate and think they've done nothing. Because of their aim, they lose true devotion and spirit, which lies in distrust of self and in humble and patient per perseverance so as to please God. Once they do not find delight in this, or any other spiritual exercise, they feel extreme reluctance and repugnance in returning to it, and sometimes even give it up. For after all, as we mentioned, they're like children, who are prompted to act not by reason, but by pleasure. All their time is spent looking for satisfaction and spiritual consolation. They can never read enough spiritual books, and one minute they're medita meditating upon one subject, and the next upon another, always in search for some gratification in the things of God. God, very rightly and discreetly and lovingly, denies the, this satisfaction to these beginners, for if he did not, they would fall into innumerable evils because of their spiritual gluttony and craving for sweetness. Wherefore, it's important for these beginners to enter the dark night and be purged of this childishness. Those who are inclined towards these delights have also another serious imperfection, that is, they're weak and remiss in treading the rough way of the cross, a soul given up to pleasure naturally feels aversion towards the bitterness of self-denial. These people incur many other imperfections because of this spiritual gluttony of which the Lord in time will cure them through temptations, aridities and other trials which are all a part of the dark night. So as not to be too lengthy, I don't want to discuss these imperfections any more, but only point out that spiritual sobriety and temperance beget another very different quality, one of mortification, fear, and submissiveness in all things. An individual thereby becomes aware that the perfection and value of his works does not depend upon their number or the satisfaction found in them, but upon knowing how to practice self-denial in them. These beginners ought to do their part in striving after this self-denial until God, in fact, brings them into the dark night and purifies them. In order to get to our discussion of this dark night, I'm passing over these imperfections hurriedly. That's St. John of the Cross. But really, uh, he's the great master. And uh, if I read too quickly and if you didn't get it, it's, it's really worth going over it again. Because we're all called a holiness, and we have many enemies. It's not just like a mountaine mountaineering. It's like mountaineering, you've got people who are trying to throw you over the cliff, people you can't see. So we do well to take him and the other great master of the spiritual life, St. Teresa, St. Teresa of Lisieux, 
and so many of the other great saints take these as our guides for the warnings he gives about the desire for, for these uh, outward things. That's the thing we need to take to heart. And this is really how I justify reading this to, to, to meet the subject of tonight's talk. We have time. It's, we have about 40 minutes for a discussion. And I'd like to lead it off with this question to Father Thwaites. Uh, that advice, above all of John of the Cross, seems to me to be directed toward individuals, probably nuns, priests, and brothers, who keep thinking they're having visions in the cell. And it's, it's no doubt what, I mean, that's probably the big temptation, because that's the real action when you can say the Blessed Sacrament, uh, the Sacred Heart appeared to me, and all that. But it seems to me, Father, the big problem for us is not that we think we're having visions. We meet other people who claim to have visions, and we want to know what to do about them. Uh, you meet people from about 20 different places on the world, and they claim to be giving us messages from heaven. So what sort of advice could you give on that? In other words, I don't think I've ever had a vision. I've never claimed it, but I've met around 20 people who claim the angels have spoken to them. Now, your advice, if you had each of them individually, you would read that to them, but what are you going to read to us when we meet these seers? Well, I've read a few books. That one, Is It He and I? I, I, I do read some of these things, and uh, I find them very helpful, some of them. But, uh, and, I, and for my part, I think many of them, I, I take them as being quite authentic. But I wouldn't go after, I wouldn't spend too much time reading these things. Uh, we've got a limited amount of time, lim limited amount of things we can read, to read Holy Scripture. But to read the, the people we know are absolutely sound. Uh, well, th these things can be helpful. But I, I, I never w would dream of sort of coming to a decision about any authenticity of the whole thing because I leave that to Rome. doesn't mean to say I can't get some profit from some of the things they say. But I would be very careful about uh, just accepting anything as, as authentic I think it would be crazy to do so. And I think it would be a rash for a priest to uh, say, this is authentic. I th he has to pass his the information up to uh, like a place in Nigeria where they've been having extraordinary things happening. And the parish priest got a word from the bishop saying, don't go along, don't uh, do anything to foster what's happening, but just gather all the information you can and send it up to me. I think that's the way the church, like in Lourdes, if you like, like in Fatima, that's the way the church uh, reacts. The clergy keep right out of it and just observe what's happening and then wait for some authentic judgment. The bishop and then ultimately Rome. But uh, as an individual, ordinary bloke, I, I'd never come to a decision about anything. I don't know whether that answers it. Any other discussions or questions? And by the way, do we have the we have a roving mic, which uh, we'd like you to talk into. John Edwards is taping this as almost all Profide talks. 
Um, you don't have any catalogs with you, do John? Right. If anyone uh, wants to be put on John's mailing list, so to have available to you something like about 150 titles, I think he now has on previous Profide talks, also on talks given in America by various people, including myself and Father Michelli and other people, John Edwards is your audio man. Uh, any discussion now on, on this? Father. Um, during Fatima, was the um, bishop telling the people not to go to Fatima before, you know, before the great miracle, um, when 70,000 turned up, were they told not to go there or what? I think I read somewhere that the, the bishop had advised not to go. I just, I don't know, I'm afraid. He, he well have told his clergy not to go. I think that would be sort of, you know, according to usual form. Yes, Father. Um, my daughter, one of my children, asked me, or asked us at home, does God speak to us? Um, how does God speak to us? And how, the, the crunchy question, obviously, at the back of her mind was, how do we know that it's God speaking to us and that we're not just sort of making things up in a way in our heads or whatever? What sort of answer could you help me to give to her then? <laughs> How old is she? Um, Thirteen. Well, I'd say that when her parents tell her to switch the television off and go to bed, that's God speaking to her. <laughs> we learn God's will through our superiors. That's the way God, I mean, you know, God didn't speak to the whole people. He spoke through to Moses. He speaks to us through our superiors. That's the way. And his children are in a very happy state. They can easily know what God's will is. I was just going to ask how the use of statues and paintings and so on in the churches, which the, the church has used so much over during its history, squares with um, St. John's um, warnings about the use of sensual stimulation. Well, having pictures in church, uh, it's, it's very helpful. St. Teresa of Avila, she loved these. And I think in homes, in Catholic homes, to uh, have a Catholic home and look around and see nothing Christian there at all, I think it's awful, where this world starts to get us ready for heaven. And we should have things around us so that we, they, they remind us of who we are. I think St. John of the Cross is talking about... Uh, apparitions, things we hear, supernatural, uh, a painting isn't a thing, supernatural thing, it's an ordinary physical material thing. And so I don't think it, these touch what he was talking about. He was saying that uh, if uh, we suddenly see an apparition of Our Lady, like St. Bernadette, we are holy water and uh, that sort of reaction, uh, fearful. But no, I'd, I think we should do all we can to have more of these pictures in the homes. And whenever I go around visiting, I always, you know, try to get the people to have more. It's pathetic to go into a Catholic home and look around and there's nothing there to suggest that these people accept our Lord as their master. Uh, Father, could you um, perhaps give us a little bit more information about Sister Faustina? Uh, she seems to have been in the news um, recently. I, I read little bits in various publications, and um, there's the 
the famous picture, the divine mercy, um, Jesus, I trust in thee. Now, is it, is it all right to, to have these pictures in your home? I mean, she is not obviously yes. approved by the yes. church yet, but um, the picture with our, the rays of light coming from our Lord's yes. heart are, are very evocative. Um, yes. and, and I found it very helpful, but now I'm, I'm beginning to wonder, should I actually put them in, yeah. <laughs> up yes. in the children's yes. rooms yes. And, and things like that? Yes. No, that picture now, it's approved by the church. It was banned for a time, wasn't it? As she said it would be. Uh, and when, uh, in about 1950, I saw it in a Polish home, I pointed out that this was not allowed, but they, you know, they brought it from home, I suppose. But now it is allowed by the church, and her cause is, I mean, it's the Holy Father himself who's uh, pushing it, isn't he? So I take the simply no doubt about that at all. And as for Padre Pio, I mean, his cause is under, his cause is underway. And nobody's cause would be underway, even if it weren't uh, sort of okayed by the church. So there's no, no danger in, uh, obviously, in Sister Faustina and her message, or in Padre Pio. Or, or, these, although they're quite extraordinary, that the church has, uh, they're not canonized or anything, but the church is accepting them as being authentic. I know several people who are very devoted to Our Lady of San Damiano and actually go every year on pilgrimage there. Yes. Uh, do you know very much about that? I've, see, I've seen the book. I think I've read something, but San Damiano, as far as I know, Rome hasn't... Uh, nothing, sort of, no word of approval has come from Rome. And so, for my part, I, as I said, I think it's like, like having a dog and doing the barking yourself. Uh, I leave that to, the, to, to Rome. If they speak, fine, but unless they speak, I wouldn't let myself come to any form any judgment. Is it all right? Would you say it's all right to go on pilgrimage there? Well, in these matters, you know, if food, if you've got a sort of suspicion that food is, is a bit off, I remember I, I, I had a seven-pound tin of jam and it was left opened, an ordinary tin, for months. I just didn't notice it. And then I came across it again, and it hadn't been tipped out, and I tasted it, tasted all right, smelled all right, and I put it in the dustbin. Because I've always understood that when you open a tin of something, you're meant to tip it out, or some sort of food, but I don't understand it. So I chucked it out. Well, if there's any doubt, uh, if there's a shadow of doubt... I don't want to let that into my mind in any way. And uh, about anything about which there's a shadow of doubt, I haven't even read all St. John of the Cross or St. Therese or St. Augustine or any of, this, any of these people. I've got so much to learn from sources that are absolutely pure. Well, why not go to, a, I mean, if, if there's a spring of water, or absolutely, I know, when we stop drinking milk. Extraordinary, because of this place in, in Russia. She won't drink milk. But if people are that fussy about their, about their bodies, we ought to be much more, well, that's just a scruple, I suppose, but anything that about which there could be any error at all, we should have such a love of the faith that we wouldn't want to touch it. There's no possible error, really, about the general drift of, of Padre Pio's teaching or Sister Faustina. And as for the canonized saints, well, I mean, these are the food the Church gives us. 
So for people who go after these other things, I used to think it's like these kids who keep, keep off going, buying these bits of chocolate wrapped up. And all the time, their mother's got dinner waiting for them. Real solid stuff. And they lose their appetite through eating chocolate and things, to their mother's dismay. Well, our mother of the church has got good, nourishing food for us. In the back, uh, Miss I was going to ask Father about Sister Faustina and the Day of Divine Mercy, the Low Sunday. Do you approve of that? Because a lot of us have gone to, to, to confession and made the novena and, and have received her communion on, on the Sunday after Easter, Low Sunday. And I'm wondering whether we should wait till Rome um, canonizes Sister Faustina until they proclaim that it's okay to do it. What do you think? Well, uh, uh, I, I'd accept that, not because of any intrinsic, you know, not because of how it seems to make good sense to me, but simply because Rome has already you know, her cause is underway. And I think that although she's not canonized, Rome has accepted the authenticity of it all. But, and for that reason alone, I, we did it. But really, I think that in all this matter, I just look to Rome. I don't look anywhere else. So I wait for the Holy Father to make a move, then I move. But until he makes a move, I sit tight. I agree with your principle, absolutely, Father. But there's a problem because... Uh, what about Bernadette? There was St. Gariqua, um, who was a great saint, who recognized her immediately, and a lot of other holy people. Were they wrong? Because the canon law says that we can have devotions to, unless there's anything against the church, it's not, uh, it's not against canon law. Now, in the case of St. Bernadette, what would you have done yourself? You've been there. It took about four years before the church spoke. Were they all wrong, these people? It's a, it's a difficult question, isn't it? D d very difficult to answer, yes. And uh, if I hadn't met Bernadette, I'd been right against her, on principle. If I'd met her, perhaps I'd have been so, you know, convinced that I'd have... Uh, but even so, I'd have waited for the bishop. Uh, but there was a, I read a life of a saint, a French woman of the last century. She founded a religious congregation. And there's a woman got into the congregation who was an absolute imposter. Uh, and she expelled, she got, got, made herself made superior general, expelled the foundress. Now, the priest who was backing this imposter was a very holy priest, not canonized, a Perginac. He had a great reputation for holiness. People came from all over the place. And he backed up this woman. So, I mean, the holiest people can make mistakes. Uh, as happened, of course, at the time of the Great Schism. You had saints on both sides. So, in, in, if it's time St. Bernadette, I suppose I'd have waited for the bishop. I wouldn't have had to wait all that long. It's very difficult to know what to do, but in, the dangers are so great. I think that, and we're dealing with an intelligence, the devil's, I mean, obviously incomparably greater than ours. I think it's, it's prudent, and there's so much at stake, our salvation, or our Catholic faith. There are so many people who lost the faith these days. And so many, I mean, a, a great friend of mine, very good priest, most holy man, and he gave up, he got absolutely hooked on, on charismatics. And uh, he, he's out of the priesthood. I was staggered. I don't know how it happened. But he was an, undoubtedly a very good holy priest. But there must have been some weakness, I don't know what it was. And so there's so much at stake, I think we had to be very prudent and careful.
And in, if in doubt, don't move. Just look to Rome and wait for Rome to say, or look to your superiors. So I think that I, I go very carefully in all this business. I don't mind being stupid and everything, but it's only my faith that I, I'm frightened of losing. So, so in doubt, I, I keep right away from everything except what the Pope has put his thumbprint on. In the back, uh, Amy? Yes, um, Father, I, I just want to say about um, uh, our, uh, our saints. If you may know uh, St. Vincent Perel, uh, well, he's, he's uh, a saint, and um, even then, he, God has bestowed on him so many gifts, you know, um, miracles um, and so on. But, but yet, at the time, he, um, he was in the side of the wrong pope, which, uh, uh, um, which St. Catherine of Sheena was in the, in, um, in the right pope um, in Rome. Um, so I, I just want to, you know, um, ask uh, about it, you know, that uh, even our, you know, what you say about being, I mean, uh, the church had um, made him a sense, and yet he, he made a, um, a wrong judgment by then. He wasn't canonized for that wrong judgment. Every saint made a mistake. When a man's made a doctor of the church, Lovely story about St. Vincent Ferrer. One of his Dominican confreres met him and said, he'd been raising the dead to life. And said, well, Father Vincent, how's, how's humility? Uh, no, no, he said, how's pride, I think. And yeah, that was it. He said, how's, how's pride? And he said, well, it comes and goes, but thank God it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say that he was canonized because he was such a great saint. But... Uh, I think even the doctors of the church, they, they made mistakes here and there, like with St. Albert and St. Thomas Aquinas about the Immaculate Conception. So even the greatest saints, it's only the church in her settled judgment can't make a mistake. But when they canonize St. John of the Cross, they do canonize him for his doctrine. So I think we're safe in following him in this. Father, I do believe that one can hear people speaking to you, but uh, voices speaking to you interiorly. But immediately you're, you're, uh, you're marched off to the psychiatrist. Well, they, uh, no, uh, Don Gobby, uh, Mary Movement, a priest, they haven't marched him off to the psychiatrist. But as St. John of the Cross says, we have to be very careful about these things and try not to want them, certainly not to want them. And he said we should try to resist. It's by faith we have to be led. And the church gives us very clear light in our faith, which way to go. And we, we don't need these things. St. Joan of Arc, yes, she did. And she heard these voices, and they came from heaven. And they led her to do what she did do, and led her to holiness, of course. Now, obviously, voices can come from heaven. They do. But uh, I suppose she was given also such a conviction that they really did come from God that uh, 
she had no difficulty in following. God can always make us do what he wants us to do. But the general drift of what St. John of the Cross is saying, I suppose, is that we should be very fearful of these things and try to make sure there's no desire in our heart for them at all. If there is any of this desire, that's something the devil could use. And, and certainly I'd say if, there's any vo- if one hears voices, one should always go to confession about it. I'd like to make a comment. I hope it's in order, and I want to ask Father Thwaites' opinion of this, because I think we all feel this, but we don't want to articulate it. In New Jersey, there's an Archbishop, Garrity, who, in my opinion, is a total disaster, and he has approved, put his imprimatur on a catechism which is heretical. After 15 years and 1.6 million copies, he was finally ordered to remove the imprimatur, which he did reluctantly. Now, here's the point. Everyone knows how bad Garrity is, and even Rome. But Garrity now is opposing a charismatic community. This is a strange thing. There's a group of people in New Jersey called the People of Hope who have all kinds of visions. They claim that they're being told by the Spirit to do this or that. And the Archbishop forbids them to do things. And in a way, I'm glad. I mean, I, I can understand this. But what perplexes us is... Why should we trust? People say, always wait for church authority. Well, why should I trust Archbishop Garrity, who's the true ordinary? He has jurisdiction in this archdiocese. If he can't even find out a heresy in the catechism, why should I trust him to find out the authenticity of, of the spirit? So I think that's what perplexes us, and that's probably why all these visions get so much ground. You have all these mystics, or so-called mystics, and their message is that the bishop is crazy, or the bishop is a heretic. And then we say, wait for church authority, but why should I wait for a heretical bishop to, to tell me about whether this mystic is true or not? So I think that's what's bothering some of us. Uh, I hope that wasn't too blunt. <laughs> Could you comment, Father? Gosh. Perhaps he banned it because he saw that Sunday collections would be going down. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> they were having that, their own gatherings and not uh, going on to his churches. I don't know. I, I didn't, I'm sorry. sorry. No, oh, I said... I, I said, get the British accent. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, all I, I said... I said get even with him. Uh, I thought perhaps he banned it because he saw the Sunday collections would go down. They'd all go off on their charismatic get-togethers yeah. and not be coming to his churches. But uh, that, that's the only thing that came to my mind. Yeah. But uh, the, char- the charismatic renewal movement, the, there is an appetite. I, I have the impression there's a sort of spiritual gluttony there. People go along wondering, am I going to be, am I going to have an experience? Well, it's not a very nice comparison, but I think it's like a girl, a teenager, who is just beginning to get impure and have desires. And she goes along to a, to a disco saying, am I going to lose my virginity tonight? That thought is a sinful thought. And I think it's comparable to the thought of somebody who goes to a charismatic renewal meeting, thinking, am I going to be seized by the Spirit? We belong to Christ alone. And uh, we shouldn't want anything else. And we shouldn't want any of these experiences when we get God himself in Holy Communion. It seems to me that there's a, there's a, 
how is our unchastity about this spiritual gluttony, which makes us want things that we shouldn't want. We have to wait for heaven to see God, and that should be enough in this world. We've got the Catholic faith. Isn't that enough? We shouldn't be wanting uh, any further boosts. If God chooses to give us something, it's like parents giving sweets to children to cheer them up. And if God chooses to give people something, that's fine. But to set our hearts on it, to try to uh, evoke the consolation again in some way, that would be wrong. So we really we have to try to go along, as St. John of the Cross keeps saying, in great sort of poverty of spirit and uh, content to work simply through faith. doesn't answer your question at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it, it, he, was, he was asking about charismatic, charismatic renewals. But also, and, I mean, uh, that, why should we trust the authority of bishops who are known to give approval to every sort of nonsense? In other words, what's, I, the big problem is why are we in such an awe of church authority when the church authority is scandalous? Yes, well, we have to look over the head sometimes of bishops to, to Rome. Uh, and if our bishops are good, we thank God for them. If they're bad, we pray for them. Uh, but as long as they're in communion with Rome, uh, I mean, if, 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 uh, if my bishop, say, forbade me to say Mass, well, I'd obey him, but I'd get to another diocese. Uh, I, I'd, uh, but we have to obey lawful authority, it seems to me. If, if, if this bishop's put there by the Pope and he's ordering something and he has a right to order it, then uh, and when he puts an imprimatur on a heretical textbook, he doesn't order me to read it. It's just that he's, he's lapsed there. But if a bishop who is uh, uh, in communion with Rome, if he was my bishop and he told me to do something that he's entitled to tell me to do, like say, stop saying Mass in his diocese, I'd certainly obey him. Obedience is, is, the, is, is the virtue that God really needs in, in us. He can't use us if we're disobedient to lawful authority. Uh, and if a bishop's really heretical, I suppose just keep writing to Rome about him uh, and make sure we don't put anything in the plate on Sunday. Uh, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't disobey if I, if I had a bishop or a superior I, I'd be careful not to disobey them because otherwise no good can come of disobedience. I mean, when the Jesuits in China were told to close the whole thing down or get out of Paraguay, they obeyed. Disaster followed. But uh, sh- surely it's, it's part of our faith we, we, that obedience, without obedience, can't do a thing. And it seemed disastrous, like Calvary seemed disastrous. But somehow that's the way God works. We have to be uh, obedient to lawful authority uh, in, in the church. Yes, this question of obedience, when the, when the bishops are disobeying the Pope and you said no good comes out of disobedience, then what good is coming to us from their disobedience? You know, do you know what I mean? We hear every day that the, that the bishops are not doing what the Pope says, what the Magisterium says, for instance. And you say, well, obedience at all costs, and it's, it's the best thing. Well, if they, if, they, if they disobey, obviously great harm's done to the Church, as we see everywhere. But uh, that doesn't justify me 
I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. As long as this bishop is in communion with Rome, he is the lawful sort of pastor of this diocese. And if I'm under him, I have to obey him. That's how it seems to me. I'd be very frightened. I, I, please God, I never will disobey my lawful superior. I mean, if my provincial now told me not to say mass anymore, I'd obey him. Uh, because that's the only way you can please God, really, and, and get spiritual fruit for the church and for the world. Disobedience does no good. If the bishops uh, get the sack, that's okay. But as long as they're, they're, uh, as long as they're under the Pope and accepted by the Pope as being bishop of this area, I think we have to obey him. Barbara, in the back. Is it not because you have taken vows, Father, that you are obliged uh, to obey? But when we know that bishops are not with the Pope, even Father Gobi said, um, if, the, if the bishops are not with the Pope, leave them. And Cardinal Gagnon also said something quite similar, that we have to let the bishops know when they are being disobedient, so that really if they, um, if they tell the faithful to do things, which we know the Pope wouldn't be pleased about, um, does that same obedience apply to laity? I know to religious life, yes, obedience at all costs. Yes, no, it does apply to priests, and, and we are, have to obey the bishops. That's why a place like Holy Cross Bookshop, it has to be run by laity, because if, uh, if it's run by a priest, and the bishop comes in and says, look, I do love Hans Kuhn, say, or Charles Cullen, but get some of their books. Well, because he's, he has to obey. But if it's lay people running it, it's like they're running a fishmonger shop, and he says... The bishop says he likes haddock, and they say, sorry, we just don't sell haddock, and that's it. It's a commercial enterprise. So lay people in that sort of area, sure, they, they can go their own way. And uh, if a bishop seems to be heretical, well, people should just get a minibus, hire a coach, and go somewhere else for Mass on Sunday. But when a priest is under a bishop, it's a, it's a relationship, of, it is a, one of obedience. He promises to obey and so, so long as he's our bishop, we have to obey him in what relates to our office. Up front here, uh, pardon me. Uh, regarding obedience, Father, could that not, not that virtue be turned into a vice? Because if you know something is, is wrong, it is heretical, aren't you obliged, aren't you duty-bound to oppose it? Yes, I mean, if the bishop told me to sort of say Mass out of the Book of Common Prayer, I mean, that would be obviously wrong and heretical. If he told you to stop saying the rosary, would you do it? If he told me to stop saying the rosary? He couldn't. Uh, no, I, uh, he abuse. couldn't do it. Uh, but, no. Uh, he, 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 he couldn't possibly do it. You see, that, that's not within his sphere, surely. He's, he's overstepping his, his authority. Yes, like... Uh, for instance, I heard of one diocese where the bishop will not allow them to sing Soul of My Saviour. Well, I think a parish priest would probably quite disregard that. They'd say that that's uh, beyond his, his powers to, to order that sort of thing. I think that's true. Some dioceses are not allowed to sing Soul of My Saviour. Oh, David. Good evening, Father. Uh, 
one thing about obedience, uh, isn't there a balance where one can question uh, something which is uh, put up, which one feels is not right? I mean, we have the pleasure of questioning you just now. Wouldn't you have the same uh, right to question the bishop if it was yes. something even quite yes. legitimate? Yes, yes, certainly. Due representation is always called for. And so it, this happens regularly. If, if a superior gives some order which seems to be really unwise, people have a duty to make due representation, to try to show him how wrong that is, what disaster is going to result. But when they've made that complete, I mean, if a bishop says uh, to somebody, uh, you're too old, you've got to leave your job, and he feels quite able to go on for a bit, he's entitled, he should make due representation and do everything, get, get people to support him. Like when uh, the Pope, uh, this is hundreds of years ago, told the Carthusians they had to mitigate their rule of life and start eating meat and things. So they sent a delegation to the Holy Father of about four or five of the, and the youngest was about 92, uh, to, to, sh to show that uh, in point of fact their austerity in no way damaged their health. They were making due representation, the Pope gave way. Father. I think in the third century, wasn't Bishop Notorious, was it his name? Nostus. Uh, um, was um, anathemized by his congregation for heresy. Nestorius? Was it Nestorius? Well, I mean, yes, Ari uh, yes, bishops, certainly. I mean, all heresies in the church have been led by, if they're not priests, they're by bishops. Yeah. And so if a bishop goes into heresy, as so many did, of course, at the time of the Arian heresy, most of them, uh, it's really sad. And I suppose, well, England at the time of the Reformation. Uh, it's, it, we're in better position now because we have access to what the Holy Father's teaching more than they had then. And so if, if bishops seem to be going wrong, we just have to keep our eyes on the Holy Father.